Good evening, you are listening to The Three Moves Ahead, and I'm your host, Rob Zachney. Joining me today, we have our friend, back after a long exile, Julian Murdoch. Exiled? What did you do? Did you send me off into the cold north to die because I'm too old? Not because you're too old, but I, I do think it. I, I do hope you've had a chance to think on your sins. I, I have. I've thought a lot about what I've done, and I'm ready to confess all of my misdeeds. Uh, so today we're tackling one of the best games of this brave new post-Hearthstone world of online card games. Uh, while Counterplay Games Duelist won our Patreon poll on this topic a little while back, Julian was way into Duelist before it was cool. Uh, so, Julian, why don't you kick us off here with a little info on Duelist? Uh, in what ways is it sticking to a proven template, and where is it kind of innovating and refining on, on the formula? Well, so let's back up a second. So I have to say, I have to give credit where credit's due. I found out about this game from uh, another podcaster, video guy, who you may know, uh, know as Quinns, uh, who does Shut Up and Sit Down, which is a great video series of board gaming reviews for the most part. Um, and he does a separate little thing called best game ever. And he did it, which nobody subscribes to it's, it's sort of his side project and best game ever did a little thing on duelist. I want to say two years ago, uh, where he just proclaimed the praises of this game. And it seemed so ridiculous that he would be so over the top about it that I had to jump in and see what all the noise was about, because what this game is is a fairly simplistic sort of card battling game, very Magic the Gathering-esque in that you play a card to summon a creature and maybe you summon a spell to buff that creature or do some direct damage. I mean, a formula we've seen hundreds of times at this point, uh, combined with a very simple grid where your actual creatures that you summon move around and, and your general. So it's derivative, it, the, the most accurate criticism you could make of this game is that it is very derivative of something like summoner wars which has many of the same uh concepts in it where you summon a general and then you summon creatures next to that general and maybe you have some extra actions uh which in summoner wars is a great uh great board game made by colby dauk um from plat hat games there's a great online version of that that you can play there's a great uh, ipad version of that you can play so on the surface this game should have no mojo whatsoever however it is one of the best games i've ever played <laughs> and i'm not quite sure how to convey that i think what it's doing to improve on the form it takes traditional concepts like multiple factions with different core powers in each faction uh, and it takes the core conceit of collectability where there's sort of rare cards that you unlock and if you play enough of the game you go to unlock more cards very hearthstone-esque in that sense and it combines it with what is actually a very strategic tactical miniatures game almost chess-like in its complexity and the the proof of that pudding is I have spent more time playing what is the equivalent of a daily chess puzzle in this game than I have playing the core game itself. So every day they publish a static board, much like a chess puzzle you would find in the newspaper, and they challenge you to win in certain conditions. X number of turns uh, is, is the most common one, but very much like a, a, a chess puzzle will say, you know, white to mate in five turns or something like that. And 
the combination of understanding the interactions of the card play with the tactical situation on the board is something that I don't think any game has ever done quite the way Duelist does it. And that's why I think this game is unique. So it's interesting. At first, like my first reaction to it was that the the ta- the little tabletop grid board grid uh, that you that you sort of push your units around on. My my first reaction w- was that that was um, cr- like crazy simplistic, and that to me it almost seemed like um, a red herring. Like it looked like it offered a lot of options, but the way it it tended to play out was that. Uh, your generals sort of stood near each other, and then it turned into a giant like rugby scrum of monsters uh, getting summoned and 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 slaughtering each other. Um, I, I thought that at first, but I'll be damned if there isn't a lot of of little nuances uh, to to that little tactical game. Uh, you know, at times it, it feels to me like um, Duelist is very much a order of operations. Uh, puzzle and mm-hmm. maybe that's maybe that's very conventional for the, for the card game space but i find myself like hesitating over turns a lot uh to the point where i think something else that makes the game a little more gripping is that a lot of times there's just enough to think about that i start to run afoul of the turn timer yeah. and i have to commit to like eight different things in that last like 10 second burst where all all hell just breaks loose uh but there's a like with the sort of riposte um, like counter blows that that every monster is able to sort of land, every unit sort of sort of able to land. Um, you know, in addition to sort of playing your deck well, there's a lot to think about with just how you're going to engage those units each turn. Yeah, for sure. And I think that the design, I don't know anybody associated with this game, to be clear. Uh, Nobody's ever given me a free pack of something or whatever. Um, And you can legitimately play this game free to play. I have spent maybe 20 bucks on this game now after a year of playing it. Um, But you can just legitimately play, get better. Yes, if you open a lot of these virtual boosters, you'll get some rare, rare cards, rare monsters that are slightly broken, but it has nothing like the, the curve that even something like Hearthstone has where people who play a lot just have decks you can't possibly beat. The core decks for each, uh, each, uh, you know, race faction, whatever they're called, um, are actually completely viable. Um, and I actually played through the last season, got to gold in their ranked system using the starter decks. Never once adding. You never built any it. customs. Never built any custom decks. And then I started getting into buying some cards, actually opening up all the packs, et cetera. And, and yes, customizing it because like any game with lots of powers and factions and rule breaking, rule breaking rules, uh, like, you know, like a cosmic encounter or a magic, the gathering, um, if you seek to optimize and seek to exploit loopholes, yes, you can create overpowered decks. But I, I will say there's seven, I think seven, six factions in this game and then a, and a whole pile of neutral cards that anybody can use. They're really unique. They're really different. And they're not just different in the sense that uh, the Lionar guys are really melee intensive and the Abyssian guys are really sort of magic rangy. They're much more interesting than that. Each one of them has their own unique internal synergies um, about uh, about how they work. And many of them have unique rules that only exist for their card set. So, for example, 
one of the uh, one of the factions has an ability where some of their units, when they're behind the lines, if you manage to get them behind the enemy, become ridiculously overpowered. And so playing that faction becomes all about movement and territory control, not so much about just raw beat em up. Um, and, and that interplay, I find really interesting. And, and it makes playing even the same deck over and over again really fascinating because even if you lose, you've learned a lot about how that game is going to play out between you and the opposing faction. Yeah, I was surprised at how much nuance there there is to the factions. I think, you know, to an extent, something that sort of put me off the game a little bit at first was that um, I think the game actually starts you with the Lionar faction. Yes, that's sort um, of the, the, the starter. Because it's the, the Lionar faction is sort of the most traditional... Um, you know, you, your your units have a lot of health. They have a lot of straight up beat em up ability. Um, they they have a lot of area of effect stuff. So it's it's very traditional in the sense that if you've played any territory game ever, you're gonna you're gonna grok what's going on. And there's not a lot of like weird subtle nuance. There's not a lot of super combos. So that's that's what they start you with, which I think is very effective. Yeah. Uh, definitely effective. But like as as an introduction to the game, I was sort of because. Like I ran into a problem I often run into with Julian Murdoch recommendations, which is the hype bar is set super high, and then I'm like, "Oh boy, Guilty. this Guilty is going to be charged. awesome." And then like reality sets in, and I'm like, oh, "I think I got Julian." Uh, Julian, <laughs> I'm a verb as it now. Uh, yeah, but so I started playing Lionar, and like they did seem so like. Uh, meat and potatoes yeah. uh, to an extent where it's like just keep bringing those minions out you tank a lot of damage uh, you, you do a lot of chip damage and that was kind of it and that's where I really started to get the sense that like okay so this tactical game is just going to be like you know everyone just sort of bringing in monster after monster and they all just sort of like hack at each other and sort of, it's sort of a last man standing type situation and you can play it well or, or worse uh, that was sort of my first impression of the game then I started getting into Songhai a little bit. Yeah. And suddenly everything that Lionar had taught me didn't really work anymore. Um, I didn't have as many effective, like low mana cost units. It, like I didn't, ha I didn't have a ton of units. I didn't have a ton of good units. Uh, I had, I had a very like sort of squishy, delicate army uh, in, in some ways, but I had a lot of really interesting spells. Yep. And, Suddenly, like, you know, that this was when the coin was starting to drop where I was like, I'm sort of looking at like what's on the board and looking at my hand and like I had this one really good game where I was just getting completely overwhelmed, I think by Lionar, actually. And uh the entire game hinged on this one artifact that I thought was kind of throwaway at first, because like with Lionar it would never work. Uh it all hinged on this um blood rage mask. Which yeah, is that every do one time... damage to the enemy general every time you cast a spell. I know it well. Yeah. 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 And then I start looking at my deck and I'm like, oh wait, there's a lot of things here that are actually spells. Like like I've got a lot of spells in my hand, and a lot of those spells interact with my units in some interesting ways. And that was sort of when the coin dropped where I was like, wait, these guys are completely different. This is, you know, this is an army that's entirely about like, you know, playing playing the spell game and like getting stuff out on well, the board. And and a key thing that makes that viable, right? Because you 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 went all the way to the other end. Because I would argue that Songhai is the most 
fiddly combo centric like <laughs> like it, it is a little bit like the old magic channel fireball thing that if you get the right draw you're winning on turn one or two like it's possible to do that with song high if everything just goes perfectly your way conversely you can end up just completely screwed and lose in turn four because you never get anything going on but it's very satisfying if you get it all balanced out just right and like a good collectible card game there's ways to solve for that and one of the ways you can solve is um the the way the core card mechanic works is you start with you know your handful of six cards you can toss two of them away to sort of get you know make your starting hand a little bit better but then every turn you have a replacement option and so every turn you can say i don't want this card i want the next card in the deck and you shovel your existing card whatever one you want back into the shuffle uh, it reshuffles that deck and you get a new card off the top and so there's a lot of capability to build a combo intensive or a trick intensive deck and have that work out for you because there's sort of this natural card advantage system built in that in most card games you would have to build for. Um, and then on top of that, many of the other factions, including Songhai, have the ability to get more cards out of the deck sooner too. Um, and so uh, this game that I think is legitimately the first time you play it, particularly if you play just the tutorial, just seems like a throw a bunch of dudes down and let him beat them up, actually starts cracking lots of levels of complexity very, very quickly. Yeah, and that's and that's one of the things I, I found I, I found really really satisfying, and I think that's maybe why I clicked so hard with Songhai because that was like. I had to sort of be thinking on a few different levels with Songhai in a way that I wasn't thinking with with Lionar. Now it's possible that I have not given uh, Lionar a, a fair shake. Uh, that like and I, I still played a fair bit with them, but to me it always feels like I'm just refining um, better versions of like minion-driven armies and very tanky armies. Um, so I've I've not like I've yet to see alternate lines of play. Uh, with that faction, but I, like I'm sure it's out there. I just I just haven't really discovered it. Where where Songhai always feels like this very, um, as you said, like a very a very combo intensive uh, system where you, where you're constantly sort of like thinking about the way like the spells in your hand are going to interact with your your hero's items and the character the uh, minions out on the board. Right, and and I would I would say I mean I played all of the factions through their you know I think they have a progression to level thirty or something like that. Um, where you just sort of are start unlocking the basic cards for that set. I played all of them through all of their core arcs. Um, and I will say they're all really unique. And, and if I give this game credit, it's on its second expansion now. And they haven't bothered to add a new faction. And I think that that's actually good because... They, what they've done with their expansions is sort of just go deeper into the customizability of each faction um, and made it so the new cards aren't necessarily more powerful. They're more interesting, right? They're more situational. And so if you're a really confident player of a particular faction, you may really get some value out of these new cards that come out because they play to those factions' strengths as well used by a good player. Um, and, and I think that's also pretty consumer friendly because if you're just getting into this game, the easiest way to get new cards is to drop a buck or whatever it is to open up the more core cards. Uh, and those are not going to be underpowered. They're actually just going to be more straightforward. And if you drop money on the later set, whatever the newest one is, I have no idea what it's called. They cost a little bit more of either in-game currency or real money they're going to be much more specialized. They're not going to be better 
they're just going to be narrower. So if you're building your Vitruvian deck to just be all ranged, there'll be like one magically awesome card for that very narrow definition of the game. Um, and that I think is, is something that most collectible card games get wrong, right? The most collectible card games, each expansion sort of ups the power curve and drops the viability of the core set. So far, I think they've managed to avoid that. I'm still doing very well in this and I haven't bought any new cards from the new, the new sets. So I have a, I have a question about, and this is more of a Explain to me in, in, in five sentences or less the history of game design uh, <laughs> trends in collectible card games. But I am interested that like this seems to follow the Hearthstone lead of the mana game is very simple. The game progresses, you get a you know, there, there's there's more there's more mana each go round. Um there it like mana management is something you do like turn by turn, but it's not like this really like complex economy uh, that you have to worry right. about. And when I think back to like magic, that entire game, like half that game seemed to be about like managing your mana pool and like making sure that you could sort of pay for everything you needed and making sure that your like little mana economy matched up with the stuff you would actually be doing. Yeah. And, and I think that that sort of more hardcore, I hate to use that word, but more hardcore CCGs involve a level of resource management that make them more like an RTS where you're you're balancing both an economy and an aggressive aspect and a defensive aspect all at the same time. And then sometimes your defensive aspect is simply time, right? You have to win before you no longer are capable of not losing. Um, and that I think is true of of magic. It's been it was true of Legend of the Five Rings. It's true of um, most more complex CCGs. Hearthstone's innovation, if you will, was the fact that they removed resource management from it entirely. Everybody has the same resource pool, which is just this climbing mana bar that gets to nine or ten, and then that's just what you have every turn. Um, Duelist just straight up steals that stuff. And somebody can send in an angry email. Maybe Duelist did it first, and it came out three weeks before Hearthstone. I have no idea. But from my perspective, it's just copying that mechanic straight up from Hearthstone. It copies a lot from Hearthstone. It copies the same way you unlock packs down to somehow the animation works. It's a straight lift from a lot of what's inside Hearthstone. I'm willing to give it a pass on that because both... Uh, the gameplay and the art style, which we should talk a little bit about, is totally unique. The art style is this great sort of nearly late 80s style 8-bit, uh, you know, characters on a map thing that at the same time has um, some of the most interesting animations for those little 8-bit characters that I've ever seen. Right. They're very expressive for how few pixels they actually have. Yeah, I um. The art doesn't do it for me, no. to be honest. No, not, like, it's not your thing. Like in general, like like pixel art tends not to do it for me, uh, and, and possibly that's just because, like, to a degree, the pixels become sort of symbolic of an aesthetic uh, that has started to put me off a little bit. But I think it's more just um, I don't know that that doesn't speak to me so much, and neither does like the 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 character art, like on the like the the drawings of the generals, for instance, like. I don't know the the art style. It's very distinctive, um, and yet it is very. The gameplay looks uh, 
looks very like early nineties uh like strategy game or RPG yeah, or something fair. like that. Where and, and the art looks very like eighties cartoon. Um and I don't know, just it leaves me a little bit cold. However, however, have you read the flavor text on these cards? So the flavor text is kind of a new addition. So when the first when I first started playing this game, I was unaware that there was any flavor text anywhere. And maybe there was, but it was it was here and there. I have noticed in the last six or eight months, they've started adding like these there's a little book icon. And it's not mm-hmm. every card, it's just some cards have these little flavor text bubbles. And um, I will say that they're very well written and very interesting, and I have no idea what the hell is going on. Like, there's like, they, there's clearly this whole backstory thing happening, and I'm just not deep enough into the lore to care. Have but, you been actually reading it all? I'm not sure there is. I'm not sure there is like a huge backstory thing. The weird thing is, they're these really impressionistic, um, like almost like prose poems in, in a way like there's this there's this one card where i was really struck by like it, it's it's something about like every w- wooden training sword is a lie whispered in your ear every you know every circle drawn in the sand uh is a step down like down the road to some like it's it, it's this weird description but it's this it paints this picture of someone going through training and just getting the shit kicked out of them time and again and growing up basically preparing for war, preparing for war, preparing for war. And it culminates with this this unnamed character, you've seen everything through their eyes, picking a fellow soldier up off the battlefield, like off the battlefield, the soldier's wounded, picking his buddy up and then noticing it's someone from the other army and killing them like at the exact same moment that a killing blow comes in. And it's there are these weird like... I don't know. They're just these weirdly memorable and descriptive, um, like not even backstories for the cards, but they're just super evocative and like shockingly well written. It's yeah, that's the thing that's really shocking is that some of them are. Prose poems is exactly the way to describe it. I mean, remember, there's one for I can't remember the name of the card. It's something elixir. I think it's a lionar card, and and the 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 description of it is is sort of this cult like. Uh, you know, ode to this elixir of like people don't understand the power of the sun. They stand in its light all the time, and they never understand that it can penetrate you. And it goes on and on, and it and it's it's very well written. It's like a piece of really fantastic, like Renaissance era love poetry to this potion basically that you take that makes you more powerful and yeah there's weird like robert browning like (laughs) like bits almost like my sense is that there's like one guy on staff or one freelancer who's getting paid by the card who's slowly grinding through just fucking nailing it though (laughs) so like look i just need the look i just need like like 80 words for this card doesn't matter it's it's a fucking rock monster just just like write something about a rock monster well what about a story of an ill-starred sailing ship <laughs> right. sailors who the don't know what they discovered guy is going just get me the freaking text god <laughs> i just need it i just god oh, yeah. just give me the text <laughs> oh it's like it's 18 months behind schedule like like it was supposed well, to roll out with the I beta would say version it's about of the game. a quarter of the cards have that little book icon Right, so they're sort of totally patching it in after the fact. Well, but I think totally you're unlocking you. it as you play. I'm sorry, what? Because I've noticed as I've been playing, cards I've already have will just like 
the book icon will be there the next time I come in and like check out like for deck building. Yeah, but I thought that that was just that that's the order in which this guy was getting around to writing them. <laughs> <laughs> I think it might actually be like a little story nugget. I have no idea. Oh, you think but it's this... like a, you think it's a Benny you're getting because you played the card in combat or something? Like I think it's a grimoire situation, like a Destiny grimoire where it's like. Congratulations, this card now has a story attached to it. You can enjoy it. And the weird thing is, I do. Oh, no, <laughs> I get it. No, I I totally read them. Like, I've gone like, through, I've spent quite a few, like, you know, three hours on an airplane going through and reading all the Lionar texts. <laughs> I've yeah. totally done that. No, when, when the illustrated duelist uh, companion comes out, like, like I'm in. Um, so, like, yeah, the, the art style, that aesthetic doesn't do it so much for me, uh, but... Man, the 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 to- the tone of the lore is absolutely uh, my thing. Like, I only wish uh, more like strategy games were were as well written uh, as as Duelist stuff is. Um, but going back to the the mana issue real quick. So, do you think this is just like? Do you think the simplification of resource management is just like an inevitable trend in the name of attracting a more casual audience just to lower the barrier to entry to card games or do you yeah, think I like think, that there's think, a design shift happening well by when you remove the resource management issue you you don't force people to specialize so quickly so imagine that not only were you trying to specialize in say lion r or abyssian or something like that but you also then had to build a mana base or a resource base to support that deck You've just sort of added a level of complexity that doesn't do much for you. I mean, I think that when I think about really great games of Magic, n- neither none of them, neither player is going to be the one who is somehow mana deprived, right? A great game of Magic is one where both decks are working as intended and you still win, right? It's not the, oh, I'm sorry, you haven't pulled any of the colors you need. I guess I win. Right. That's a, that's, that's, I mean, yeah, that's fine to win. If you're playing in a tournament, I suppose that's great, but that's not why you play the game. You play the game to have the interaction. And so because this is fundamentally a, you know, a multiplayer game, really, you know, a one-on-one game by removing that sort of resource management issue, I think you've just, you've eliminated a source of risk. Um, You've eliminated a barrier to entry. And I don't feel like the game is any the worse for it because the, I, I don't think you can, overstate how important the tactical element of the game is the actual sort of minis on a board element is i think it's very easy to think of it as just dudes on a board swamp your general and then just bang 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 but if you're playing it that way you haven't grokked what this game is about because positioning who's standing next to who flanking uh, moving behind the lines, people who can work across the lines because they have range, people who can fly. Like, a huge part of this game is actually territorial. Uh, and, and I think that that gets missed by a lot of people who just bounce off this game. Yeah, I suppose they, that's where the RTS analogy, I guess, becomes kind of interesting, where you can almost view the hardcore card game as running into the same problems as RTSs, where a lot of times losing just feels shitty. Like, oh, yeah. you didn't, you, you like, you didn't really understand this economy, did you? You didn't really understand how the resources are supposed to work. And so when the other army showed up, you didn't have one. Uh, yeah, whereas this one definitely does, especially in that late game, 
uh, in those final turns where people are playing like three or four minions around or, or, or one giant super minion, uh, it does tend to feel like two awesome wizards just letting fly. I, it's worth noting, too, that this game is short, right? So an average game, I would say, is eight to ten minutes. Yeah. Um, it, like even if you're just letting the timer exhaust all the time, if you're up in sort of the silver bronze tier, I mean, silver and gold tiers of competitive play, I would say six minutes is a reasonable guess for the average game. And if one goes to 15, it's like the best game you've ever played. Like, I mean, this is not a long <laughs> game. And so because of that, there's a certain like losing doesn't hurt so much because you know why you lost and there's no randomness in this game other than the cards coming out of the deck and you always get to swap another card out. So even if you lose half the time, I'm thinking, crap, I knew I should have ditched these three high value cards that I wasn't going to get out to late game and I was being greedy because they're great cards. Uh, but if I'd swapped them out earlier, I would have been fine. So I'm almost always thinking about how I could have played differently. It's very rare in this game. I just feel steamrollered. And I will say with Hearthstone, half the time I hop into a competitive Hearthstone game and I'm like, I have no idea what the hell just happened, but I'm dead on turn four. Yeah, I think something that... um. I, like with, with every game and, and especially like as I start seeing how the different factions interact, I do start to appreciate that uh, that minis game more, especially because uh, so many of the factions do just use the, the board very, very differently. Uh, there's one faction. Uh, oh, God. Uh, is it Vitruvian? Uh, the, like they, they pop like a lot of obelisks. Uh, they pop like turrets down and like do like row and column damage and like I don't, they're it, they're like little like mini nukes almost landing, um, and that was something that I hadn't encountered before with anyone else. And then suddenly like I had just mass damage uh, happening. Um, I also something that I got into a habit early of doing is that um, there's a few there, there's a few cards that let you sort of. Uh, shove an enemy minion to wherever you yep. want on the board, yep. and er, like early on, I was using that to basically bury minions I didn't want to deal with. Like, all right, you're going to the corner, and you you're gonna have to walk back, and it's gonna take you like three turns, and it's gonna be fine. And then I had a game where that completely blew up in my face because there was this minion that started at like it wasn't it wasn't too bad. It was just like three attack, four health. But there was some. It was. It was. There was. I think it was an Abyssian player, and the the, the Abyssian uh, general seems to rely really heavily on um, spamming a lot of crap onto yep. the board. Yeah. Um, and so I was starting to like, like I kept bringing good units out, but there was just so much crap I had to hack through. And then there were a lot of abilities that kept upgrading that one unit that I banished. <laughs> and so that 3-4, like, kept walking toward me, walking toward my general. And, like, okay, now it's a 4-5. All right, that's going to kind now, of Now it's, now it's a 6-6, six, six and he's immune to damage from like, your general. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I was like, holy shit, are you kidding me? Like, the thing finally rolled up on my general, and it was, like, doing 11 damage. And well, it was just, it was gruesome. The thing just walked up to my general and, like, just bopped me. And I was like, well, that, that did not go the way I thought it was going to go. Have you have you played many of the daily challenge things or the there's there's another version of that, which is similar to the daily challenge where you sort of work through puzzle sets? I've done more of the puzzle sets. I haven't done the daily challenge a little bit because um, 
some of them are kind of just overwhelming. Like, oh, and I just I lose my patience. They're brutal, right? The daily challenge. I mean, one of the conceits of this game is that by by doing much like Hearthstone, by doing certain challenges on a regular basis, you get in-game currency that unlocks more dudes, et cetera, et cetera. And so it's worth doing from that perspective. The daily challenge doesn't give you crap. It gives you like one gold or something like that. There's no real reason to do it. But it is some of the most interesting strategic thinking I have done in the last year, I will tell you, because most of the time that daily challenge is a Kobayashi Maru. There is it's it's an unwinnable challenge where you're like, okay, some guy sitting in some cube figured out a single path through this that results in victory. And it is, like you said in the beginning, an order of operations challenge, like cast these three things, then do these two attacks, then cast these two things. And if you get it just slightly wrong, you're one damage short of victory. And I, oh man, I cannot tell you how many times I have spent literally a whole day going back and forth to a single challenge where I'll, you know, I'll sit down with coffee and I'll be like, Oh, what's the challenge of the day? Sort of like looking at the crossword puzzle in the morning. And I'll be, I'll throw myself at it three or four times, which, you know, is maybe three or four minutes of play. And I'll be like, that's impossible. And then at lunch, I'm like, Oh, wait a minute. I have that one creature who's a flyer and maybe he can get behind them. And then I'll go play another three or four times and it's impossible. And then by midnight, I figured it out. And that is so satisfying. And there are very few games that do that anymore. To what degree? I'm curious. To what degree do you love Duelist because it's satisfying that like daily crossword is Sudoku itch versus it's a good competitive card game. I would say it's probably sixty percent solo and forty percent competitive. Um, and and if the competitive was harder, and by harder I mean harder to get into, longer, etc., I wouldn't even probably do it as much as I do. Um. You know, it's worth pointing out that there are enough people playing this game that the wait time to get into a ranked match is on average 10 or 20 seconds. I mean, it's like you're in compared to like trying to get a ranked match in League of Legends, which could take you three or four minutes. Um, you just you just you're in you're playing you're done in six to ten minutes and then you're moving on so because of that, I play more multiplayer than I might otherwise because I don't feel like it's a huge, enormous investment of my life to get this game going. Um, but the daily challenge stuff, man, it's a really interesting brain space to be in. Sorry, I'm just distracted because I was looking up, um, I was looking at the Truvian cards because I was trying to figure out what those obelisks did. Um, and it looks like they're, they're actually buffs. So now I'm trying to figure out what the hell was that AOE spell that like nuked an entire like row of my soldiers. <laughs> Yeah, well, they're all different, right? I mean, the the obelisks, uh, you know, that that particular um, Vitruvian in particular is sort of like the, um, the almost like the support character, right? He's dropping a lot of turrets and things like that. And yeah. when you start chaining those things together, I think the 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 good ones are called dervishes. Yeah. Um, and when you start chaining those things together, they can be just enormously powerful. And a lot of they, there's a lot of self interaction with these things, and so they get dropped on the board. And a lot of these obelisks are like zero attacks, six health, uh, something like that. And then every turn they do something awesome, and so it creates this incredible barrier to your enemy because. On their own, the obelisks are irrelevant, but if you don't take them out, 
they just start dropping buffs and extra dudes and all this stuff and in, in your life is a nightmare and so they it acts as a timer on the game if those things are starting to come out just oh god i love this game there's so many levels of interaction in this and and one of the most fascinating parts is when you're playing multiplayer and you get matched faction versus faction so you're playing Vitruvian and you get matched versus Vitruvian and then you see that you've got two totally different strategies on how to use this that's probably when I learned more about this game than any other time yeah I'm like I'm like I'm starting to go through these these cards and I, I'm, I'm starting to realize like oh there's there's entire stuff that I've just not like well understood about these about some of these factions I need to spend less time with Songhai and uh and get with Vitruvian because uh, yeah. I, I, th- I really want to use this obelisks now the the entry strategy here I think is interesting. It can be a little overwhelming once you're sort of past the initial um you know, run at this game when you've done the Lion R, you know, ten games or whatever it is to sort of get in. And then you've got six factions and they're all so different. I highly recommend that you pick like three that you think are interesting. And you'll know they're interesting because you will have played against them. So you'll get the basic idea of how that faction works, like what its trick is or what its thing is. Pick three that you like and then just say, I'm never going to play the other three. I'm selling all those cards because you can deconstruct all the the rare cards that you open up out of packs just for playing and then use that essence to make new cards for the thing you want to play. And, and, and very specifically, you can say, I want this card. I can't get it out of a pack. I'm going to spend 400 MacGuffin points and buy that card. Uh, and so you just have to dissolve enough of the cards you don't want to play with. So picking three or four to really focus on and abandoning the other ones, I think is a great way to sort of get into it because it'll let you really go deep in a couple of different strategies. So the object of the game is to kill the the enemy general and uh, preserve yours, obviously. And the general is kind of, you know a bag of hit points uh, with to start a, a pretty light attack. Uh, now the interesting thing was like early on um when I started starting to like play with Lionar I tended to have my general waiting in there quite a bit and there's and there's items for your general that actually make it a lot more viable to have the general kind of wait sure. in you can slap those bracers uh on and suddenly the, the general becomes a pretty reliable DPS um but what's interesting to me now and maybe I'm doing it with Lionar, but I'm, I'm but I, I'm kind of doing it with everyone. Is that increasingly I don't want to commit my general. Uh, I like to have my general kind of roaming unencumbered, uh, both by friendlies and uh, like if friendly is by the general. I want to be like provoker to like draw aggro. Right. Uh, but it's interesting to me because when I, when like when I do play online, I still see like a lot of players just pickets charging their general. Uh, to an extent like generals get stuck in a lot but it sort of seems to me like ever since i stopped having my general get committed to fights and started just like playing more of a just stay alive and keep burning through that mana i started doing a lot better and i'm kind of curious like what's going on there you're no longer 12 years old so like you've discovered the the core of this game which is you know, never run out with the thing that costs you the game, right? It's like it's like playing Stratego or something. But there's like a that, lot right? of people who seem to like to do that. Well, yeah. Well, so you'll move out of that ranked. You know, yeah. you're, I'm guessing you're still in bronze or silver yeah. ranked games, right? And so uh, you'll 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 graduate from those people. The other thing worth pointing out is every faction actually has two potential generals mm-hmm. um, that tend to be there's sort of a core general that it's named after, and then there's a sort of an alternate general. Um, and they tend to be extraordinarily different. So um, to give you an example, just off the top of my head, Magmar, which is one of the factions that I play a lot, 
um, Vath, the immortal, is the main general, and he is a straight-up bruiser. He, um, all the generals have sort of a, a, a what's called a bloodborne spell, which is not a card. It's just a thing they get to do every couple turns. And Vath is, he just gives himself plus one more attack. And so by the end game, he's like eight attack and you know the generals only have 25 so at that point if he hits three times the other guy's dead so he is just a straight up wade in beat the crap out of people uh, general the alternate general is draw a card right is he's pure card mechanics and so if you play the alternate general you're keeping that guy in the back lines for the whole goddamn game if you can, right? I mean, he 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 should get nowhere near combat. And and all of the generals have that sort of crazy dichotomy of utterly different play styles. So, and this isn't this is not really a complaint because it's like sort of core to to how the game works and 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 the pace of play, but it is sort of a perpetual frustration a little bit, uh which is that Minions called to the board. Like, the survival rate is, like, Omaha Beach levels. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, it's, like, hey, hey Bone Dragon, you're throwing you're chumps out there. Yeah, exactly. Uh, but, so it's interesting to me, because a lot of these, because a lot of units do have, like, um, you know, like, bonuses and, uh, like, sort of conditionals that are attached to them that make them like pretty powerful if used in the right situation but damn it seems hard to get any unit to survive long enough for that stuff to play like when uh, like the special abilities that i see used the most are the um cards with like um effects that that come into play when the when when the minion is summoned uh but like to a degree i i, I think like i said it's not really a complaint it's just it, it's something that always feels like, oh, I really kind of wanted to see that unit do its thing. And a lot of times they're not sticking around long enough to do that. Uh, but I do find it kind of interesting because to an extent, it's like it's like a, it's like a tactical, like it's like a tactical minis game in some ways uh, where the entire object seems to be just about like clearing and maintaining board control. And that that is fundamentally the, the way it's driven. And like, there's a very little bit of maneuvering, but predominantly it seems to be about like, get these guys off the board as quickly as possible and like control space. Yeah. I mean, you are playing on a grid and you can only generally attack something next to you. And so if you can get your general out there surrounded by, you know, eight dudes on every, you know, orthogonal spot. Uh, mm -hmm. he, you can't hit him that turn, right? So, yeah, there is a very limited tactical space. I would argue it's very chess-like in that respect, right? That there, you you have this uh, this real clogging the field quality, and much like chess. Uh, you know, when you learn to play chess competitively, you don't focus on openings and things like that. You focus on position and power, right? So you learn how to control the four central squares. You learn which uh, units can project power into those control zones really effectively. And if you play speed chess, that's the entire game. It's just about learning how to manage that pressure on central zones. I would argue that's exactly what this game does, is that it makes you understand where the important parts of the board are early, uh, 
uh, which are highlighted because there's extra mana on them, uh, and how to control those for your opening. And then if you play that opening really well, then your deck has sort of blossomed to the point where whatever strategy you were going to play gets a chance to come to fruition. And uh, if your strategy doesn't take into account your opponent's ability to clog the board in certain areas, yeah, you're going to get screwed. Yeah, I think it's it's one of those things where just from the way the game sort of looked and like looking at the cards, I was sort of preparing for more of a, oh, it's like Heroes of Might and Magic meets Hearthstone. And it's really, really not. It's, no. it's, it, it, it's much more about like the evolving order of operations uh, with, with each turn. Uh, the thing I'm leaning on really heavily right now is um, cards with provoke abilities. Yeah. Because uh, it's like the most reliable way I have of like forcing action, and so like my entire my entire game at this point is kind of just trying to make the other the other player have fewer options and make them a little more predictable. So like my draw, like I'm sure like when I when I rank up, I'm just gonna get start getting creamed because right now all my decks are just like jammed with provoke abilities, and I'm really leaning on that to sort of like let other units move into killing positions. Well, it's worth pointing out that there there are a lot of cards that are neutral, right? So you don't have mm -hmm. to play everything out of one deck. And in fact, um, it is entirely viable to play, uh, you know, any if given faction general and an entirely neutral deck with no cards from your core ability. And neutral tends to have um, some of the sort of most basic uh functions in them so a lot of the best provoke minions which make you attack that minion instead of somebody else um, a lot of those are in the neutral deck a lot of the flying and ranged cards are in the neutral deck and there's more neutral cards than there are in any other faction so you know as you start building a collection which is mostly just by you play enough games you do enough challenges you get to unlock a bunch of cards or you're an idiot and you spend money on it like me um you may end up finding that your most powerful card set is in fact neutral. And therefore what you're doing is saying, here's the core of my deck, which is neutral, which faction is going to be the flavor that enhances this core theme I've got going on, which I think is really interesting because that's not like any other CCG, right? That's not the case for, uh, you know, magic or any other game. That is interesting, and I hadn't I hadn't really clocked that. Like I've I've sort of been sort of using a lot of like I'd sort of used the I viewed the neutral deck as kind of the place to get a lot of like my trash minions, my cannon fodder. But I was sort of taking the Hearthstone approach, which is like, oh no, like the the real the real meat on these bones is uh like faction specific cards. Like that's that's where the game is going to be won or lost. And I like I hadn't really clocked that the neutral deck can basically be viable in itself. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think there's, uh, I, I'm, I, I'm continuously surprised at how well balanced the cards are in terms of rarity versus power, right? And most of the time, you would expect that you know a common five mana drop in any CCG is going to be just inherently weaker than the ultra rare five mana drop, right? You, you just that would be your assumption. Um, that's not actually the case, right? The, if you just go through any given mana tier for cards and you look at the, the commons versus the, you know, epics, rares, con commons, whatever the hell they call them, um, all that happens is they become more specific. And, and I would, I would guess that somewhere somebody has a spreadsheet where they're power balancing each one of these cards and saying, okay, 
well, this we're going to make the Hollow Grove Keeper a super extra legendary card. Uh, and he's going to get this ability to destroy any nearby minion with provoke, which I think is what he does, which sounds amazing, but he's only going to be a three, four where everybody else at, at default level is a five, five for that power. Right. So there's like real trade-offs in these cards, right? He's enormously broken if you get the right situation, or he's just a chump if you're not playing against the right deck. Now this is where I, I wish, I wish we had someone who was like super, deep down the hearthstone uh, rabbit hole to an extent. Because what interests me here is that I I sort of had that assumption of you have to play like faction-specific decks and and cards a lot because that's the way hearthstones, the direction hearthstone seems to to have gone is that the entire entire game, the entire meta is built around these like deck archetypes. Yes. Uh, and, And so they're all very, like the things that dominate are all these, these very specific uh, decks that are very dependent on, um, like on, on the class you're playing, uh, and, basically. and specific cards, right? So you're exploiting specific mechanics. And look, for all I know, there are people who are wicked into this game that could say, "Oh, wait a minute, you're not playing the you know the Magmar Ghost Runner deck. That's <laughs> the only way to play that." And and they can all send us emails, and we'll be terrible. But this That's game never true. feels like that because I don't feel like I'm piloting a deck. Right. And magic. I love magic. I still play magic online. I still go to, you know, pre-release tournaments. I still play drafts. Um, but when you're playing constructed magic where you built your deck, right, you're almost assuredly not the first person to have come up with that. You're effectively piloting a piece of intellectual property that the Internet has decided is powerful. <laughs> and, and Hearthstone, I think, has very much become that as well. I never feel that way when I'm playing this game. And maybe that's just because I'm not having those interactions or it's small enough or whatever, but it still feels very much like my game, not piloting somebody else's. I mean, probably the fact that Duelist is not a household name definitely helps, right? You don't have the hive mind uh, sort of having these like optimal builds propagating like wildfire down to the lowest rungs of the ladder. Um, but at the same time, it, it also does seem like maybe there's something about this game that inherently lends itself less to being um, like archetype driven uh, to to having a few viable decks that, you know, as, as you said, like even top players, the responsibility is to pilot it correctly, but not create it. Right. The, the creation's done for you. You just need to know how to play it in each situation. Um, which is which is interesting. I was I was actually at a Hearthstone event, um, God, like a few weeks ago. It was like before Thanksgiving, and I was talking to a few pros. And the interesting thing was like how many like Hearthstone pros are even a little bit. If you get into games like this, the stuff that excites you, it seems, is the deck building. It's right. the discovery. Um, it's the experimentation. And the weird thing about like playing these games at a professional level is that like that all ends up going away. Like at the very highest level of, of these games, that, that aspect almost doesn't seem to exist. It becomes like your job is to correctly tabulate the odds well, or to, at every or, single moment. Or, or to play the meta, right? So at the, mm-hmm. at, at the highest level of Magic or Hearthstone, it's about taking an existing archetype and saying, okay, based on what I've seen in the competitive scene, pardon the pun, um, I think I'm going to face more of this kind of deck than this other kind of deck, which means I can tweak this archetype to be slightly better against this part of the metagame. 
Um, right. And it, magic, that is absolutely the case. Yes, every once in a while, somebody sweeps a major competition with something that nobody's ever seen before. And that's why I still think competitive magic is interesting, because there's still that option. Right? It still happens that people show up and have found a way to break the game nobody else has ever seen. But it's pretty rare. Um, so instead, it's all about, oh, it's much like poker, right? Where if you're a competitive poker player, it's not so much about I need to learn my math better. It's who am I likely to be up against at the final table and how do they generally play? Right? It's about the metagame, not about the, the game on the table, um, which is interesting and a whole nother thing. But I, that's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about the game as the mechanics and what's presented in front of you. Um, and I think there's a whole hell of a lot of depth here before I get to the point of going to the duelist forums and start downloading deck lists. Hopefully we never, we never have to reach that point. Um, yeah. So, I mean, I guess my question for you is you've been like, you've been into this game for a few months now, uh, pr- pretty seriously. I think it's about a year. Pro- I think it's about a year. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so like any signs of the spell starting to wear off or are you still well, like, I've, is this I've, still a game you're firing up a fair bit? I, I definitely go through phases, but I do that with every game. Right. Um, yeah. so we, we've, we've been through a zone here in the last few months where there've just been this embarrassment of riches of incredible games in every genre, whether it's, uh, you know, VR crap or, uh, you know, the new Civ. Uh, or you know various strategy game expansions or Planet Coaster, right? So yeah, those things have sucked a lot of time out of my life, and so I haven't played as much Duelist. Um, but I will tell you, last couple of weeks I've been firing it up because I finished all those other games, or at least I exhausted all those other games. Um, so this is one that I think, like uh, like like a good MOBA, is going to be something that I go back to, or a good MMO, you know, uh, MMO that I'm just going to keep going back to. And again, even if I never play online again against a human being, the daily challenge thing here, if, if you have any part of your brain that would normally sit with coffee and do a Sudoku, man, this thing is going to fire you up. Yeah, I think, I think for me, like, I am starting to get more and more into it. Like, as recording date has, has approached, I've started firing it up a lot to, to try to prep for this. But also, like... I've been starting to have some some really good memorable games that sort of come down to the wire where they got like two or three turns, you know, on nine mana a piece, and everyone's just like blowing through the deck. It's a lot of fun. Um, I'm also in the in this weird like um, I'm I'm kind of bouncing between three games right now, and there's a weird like it feels like there's a weird continuity between them just just in my head. Uh, it's this, it's Banner Saga two, and it's Darkest Dungeon. Wow, so you're like totally going on the retro art style round. <laughs> that's 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 probably part of it. You know, you got the Ivan Earl uh, style of Banner Saga, and then the Gory esque uh, Darkest Dungeon, and then yeah, and then this. But I think also they're they're all games. These are all games that are very much order of operations games. Like Banner Saga's entire tactics. Uh, oh, yeah. tactical game is driven and Darkest by Darkest Dungeon is totally like do I run the rogue first or do I sit back with the healer yeah totally. right right yeah. right and so like these games are, the weird thing is I'm getting better at all of these like really quickly like I'm noticing improvements <laughs> happening and it's like it's weird like each game is like teaching like giving me insights to the other ones and like I don't know I'm like my like currently my strategic brain is getting rewired by these three games and now sort of like I just have this insatiable hunger for like weird puzzle-esque tactics games 
Yeah, I think the other uh, just the one one sort of last thought about how that order of operations things plays out in this game. Order of operations game or, or as a gameplay mechanic um, is only satisfying when you feel like you have some control. Right. If it's an order of operations game where everything is random. And so now all you, have to, you, have, you have your eight pieces on the board and you just have to figure out which one to use first. That can feel a little bit just like piloting. Right. That's that's that running the net deck and magic and making sure that you cast the buff before you cast the creature or something like that. And I think that that's a pretty limited level of satisfaction because you master that for a given archetype and then you're done. The thing that I think is so it's a very subtle thing, but I think it makes a huge difference in this game. The ability to constantly fish into your deck for new cards means that you've always got this decision to make. Every turn you have this decision about whether you believe the card quality in your hand is as good as it can be based on what you know is left in your deck. And that's a level of sort of poker analysis, right? Like when you're playing poker and you're trying to say, okay, I have four outs to make this the unbeatable nuts on this hand. I love that. And, and so there's something about that that really appeals to me too, knowing what cards I played and what I put into the deck and whether or not I should fish for more cards is really valuable. That's interesting. So you, you got into the game playing nothing but starter decks. Uh, I'm getting into the game by almost never fishing into the deck. Really? Like I have a very like I have a very like play it as it lays uh kind of approach to this game and I'm kind of like no, like you you built this deck like if if there's if there's ever a turn where you don't have options then the, then you probably screwed up the tuning. Oh. Uh so I I, 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 I tend to be I, pretty I would say I fish every other turn on average. Oh man, see my decks are super like mana curve driven, uh, so I'm just like, right, all right. But, like, but if but if I've got, a, I mean, if if I have three mana available and I have a six drop in my hand, I'm pretty likely to shove that six drop yeah. back into the deck, right? And if it's if I have eight mana and I have a bunch of three drops on the board, I'm almost assuredly going to be shoving some of those three drops out because I know mm. I'm not going to be able to build a hand out of those because I'll, and then I'll just end up running out of cards, right? If I end up playing all those low value cards, right. Then I've exhausted my hand. So uh, then I've just limited myself for the future. So that ability to for free fish into the deck and throw a card away, I think is super important. Interesting. Well, I'm not saying you're to... playing wrong, Rob. I'm just saying. No, no, no. I'm like, I'm, like, like, I probably am. Like, I'm leaving the entire game mechanic basically on the shelf because I'm like, nah. I have an aesthetic objection to to using it that way. But like, I've got the if I've got the the six mana uh, minion in my hand, uh, like there aren't a ton of those in 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 my de- well. There, there's a fair number of those, but like when you start getting up toward like the you know the really high value minions, it, it gets a little more sparse on the ground. But when I have those, I tend to be like. I tend to want to hang on to that because in a turn I will be able to play it, and then I know I've got it, and I can plan for it. Yeah, so I, tend no, I, to... I, I understand the the allure of the known versus the unknown, right? Because you can you can throw that six away and then get some chump one that you didn't yeah. want, except on turn one and all that. I mean, I'm a guy I, like I'm a guy running like twelve provoke cards. In a, <laughs> no, that's not true, but a lot of provokes. So yeah, I, I am very much a I, I don't like my um I don't like my unknown unknowns yeah uh, you're as, minimizing as the variability of your strategy well and yeah. and you know this game has some mechanics in it that i think really allow you to mess with that there's a whole bunch of cards here that have variable mana costs based on something based on how much health you have how much health your opponent has how much 
Um, how many minions have been cast in the turn before, right? So, I mean, there are cards out there that cost 10 mana, but then get reduced by one for every minion that's been cast in the last turn. So they can end up being free if your opponent goes on a field day. So, uh, you know, there's a, there's a real opportunity to mess with that mechanic. Ah, I love this game so much. All right, well, uh, we'll, we'll have to play it a bit over this break. Um, but yeah, it's definitely it's definitely clicking for me in a way that Hearthstone uh, hasn't, and that Magic, frankly, never came close to. Like Magic was always too too fussy for me. So this is uh, this this is one of the first like card games that's the, that's really started to started to click with me. So uh, I'm I, I thank you for introducing me to it, and I thank our listeners for for voting up Duelist uh, as as our topic. Uh, that will do it for this week. We'll be back next week with more strategy discussion. Three Moves Ahead is produced, as always, by Michael Hermes and is hosted on the Idle Thumbs Network. You can learn more about the show and discuss this episode with our community at threemovesahead.net or follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash 3MA. Finally, Three Moves Ahead is supported by listeners just like you on Patreon. This topic in particular is brought to you by our Patreon backers during our monthly topic vote. You can learn more at patreon.com slash 3MA. Anyway, happy holidays. We'll be back next week with another episode of 3MA. Until then, for Julian Murdoch, this is Rob Zachney saying to you all a good night.